Hello, this is your host, Trevor Furness. And before we begin our episode today, I want to take a moment to thank five of our supporters on Patreon. These people are patrons of the March of History. Their names are, and I'm only going to say first names, Giancarlo, Ray, Peggy, Carrie, and Laurie. Thank you all so much. You are patrons of the March of History. You have joined me on this journey. And much like the Medici of the Renaissance who supported Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, you have now put forward money to support the artwork that is the March of History. The March of History may not seem like art at first glance, but it is historical tales told in an in an oral format, which is a form of art that goes back as far as human history itself. So you have put forward your hard-earned money to help contribute to the March of History, and I cannot thank you enough. We are on this journey together, and the March of History will only get better and better with your contributions. So thank you. Now, if you want to become one of these patrons, if you want to join us on this journey, you can go to patreon.com slash the March of History. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the March of History. There's also a link in the summary to every single podcast episode. And we have recently launched a PayPal account, which does not have a friendly link. So I have also listed that in the summary section of every podcast episode that we put out. So on the PayPal, if you want to make a single donation for uh, you know one time or donate per episode, you can do that. Or on the Patreon, if you want to donate per month, you can donate on the Patreon. So a few different options for you now. But thank you so much for your support, our patrons, and I'll talk to you in the episode. This is episode 46, Bridging the Rhine. I am your host, Trevor Furness, and let's get lost together in the world of ancient Rome and the life of Gaius Julius Caesar. We ended our last episode with Caesar repelling yet another German invasion, or you might call it a migration, depending on your viewpoint, of Gaul. And after this invasion or migration, Caesar decides that he is done playing defense against invading Germanic tribes. He's done waiting for Germanic tribes to cross the Rhine and wreak havoc on Gaul. It's time to move from defense to offense. These Germanic tribes believe that this whole invasion thing only works one way, with them crossing over the Rhine and into Gaul for an invasion. Caesar wants to show them once and for all that it can easily work the other way around. Caesar says in his own words in the commentaries, quote, He, meaning Caesar, wanted them to experience fear on their own account, when they realized that the army of the Roman people was both capable of crossing the Rhine and brave enough to venture it, end quote. The second reason Caesar gives for this decision to invade into Germania is that the cavalry of the Eusippides and the Tenteri, remember those are the tribes from last episode that Caesar had defeated and their cavalry forces had been away from the main armies and had avoided the massacre that Caesar had inflicted on their people, those two cavalry forces had retreated beyond the Rhine and had taken shelter with a Germanic tribe known as the Sugambri. And Sugambri had made an alliance with these cavalry forces of the Eusippides from the Tenteri and had taken them in. 
Caesar sent messengers to the Sugambri demanding the surrender of these cavalry soldiers, and the Sugambri, when they got these messages, refused. In fact, they sent a message back to Caesar saying, and this is, of course, according to Caesar in the Gallic commentaries, so take it for what it's worth, they say, quote, They, meaning the Sugambri, replied that the Rhine marked the boundary of the rule of the Roman people. If Caesar thought it wrong for Germans to cross into Gaul against his wishes, why was he claiming any rule or power across the Rhine? End quote. And again here, we have another example of Caesar placing quite a strong argument into the mouth of his enemies. From their point of view, who is Caesar to be ordering them around on the Germanic side of the Rhine if he's making this whole point that the Germans have no influence and shouldn't be coming over to his side of the Rhine, the Gallic side of the Rhine, right? They're saying that Caesar is being a blatant hypocrite by ordering them around on their side of the Rhine while at the same time telling them that it's wrong for them to influence Gaul and come into Gaul and to try to do anything with Gaul because that's his territory. They say that beyond the Rhine is their territory, so who is Caesar? to order them around. These are bold words from the Sugambri, but it's a little bit like a dog barking when there's a fence between them and the intruder. And once the fence is taken away, it may be a very different story. And in this case, in our metaphor, the Rhine is the fence that the Sugambri are barking from behind because they think Caesar either can't or won't cross the Rhine. Caesar, of course, has other plans. He says that the tribe of the Ubii who are beyond the Rhine themselves, had already invited him over. The UBI wanted protection from the Swabi. Remember, the Swabi were the tribe of Ariovistus, the most powerful and aggressive tribe in Germania, according to Caesar, and they had been beating up on their neighbors. One of their neighbors was the UBI. The UBI are also who Caesar wanted to pair the Eusipides and the Tenteri with to try to form a coalition against the Swabi, but of course, that didn't work out, and Caesar ended up massacring the Eusipides and the Tenctary. But this invitation offers Caesar an additional justification for crossing his army over and into the Rhine. And the UBI even offer supplies for his army and offer him boats to cross the river. But boats, says Caesar, you want me to cross the Rhine on boats? I don't want boats. Caesar refuses this. He says using boats to allow his army to cross the Rhine and enter Germania would not be in accord with either his own dignitas or that of the Roman people. And this is an important point, because later when Caesar crosses the Rubicon, he will cite protecting his dignitas as one of the reasons that he is to march on Rome. Caesar is a man who takes the protection of his dignitas very seriously. He also adds that he worried about the safety of these boats so they wouldn't be safe enough to move his troops across the river. So he refuses the UBI's generous invitation. Now, Caesar, for his entire life, has always been a showman. We have seen this in this podcast again and again in his life as a politician in Rome. He has an ability to wow and to put the spotlight on himself in a way that few others can, or really in Rome, nobody else can. And if the Roman army is going to cross the Rhine under Caesar's command, you better believe they're going to do it in grand style. They're going to cross in a way that no German or Gaul thought possible. They are going to build a bridge. And just on a side note, the Rhine River is of course the same river that U.S. General George Patton during the Second World War famously pissed into while he and the U.S. Army were crossing their own bridge over the Rhine to show his contempt for this historic boundary into Germany. 
But getting back to our narrative, bridging the Rhine may sound simple to modern ears, but think about it from the Germanic and Gaul perspective thousands of years ago during Caesar's day. As far as we know, there has never been a bridge across the Rhine up to this point in Caesar's day. For all of human history, people have relied primarily on boats to cross. It was just a fact of life. In our modern society, we are so used to a breakneck speed of technological change that it's very difficult for us to imagine this. You know, in today's world, what is true today may not be true in five or ten years, technologically speaking, or even sooner. But most of history, it wasn't like this. Things stayed pretty much the same, technologically speaking. The technological change of pace in ancient times was utterly glacial and did not always even move forward. I mean, think about the Roman Empire in its technological sophistication moving to the Dark Ages in Europe. Or even ancient Greek had their own Dark Ages in which they forgot how to write for 300 or more years. Now, I'm no expert on the ancient Greek Dark Ages, and I'm sure some people remembered how to write, but in general, as a society that used writing for purposes, they stopped using it. So, in ancient times and throughout human history, the speed of technological advancement is just incredibly slow, so slow as to not be noticed, and at times it actually moves backwards, it doesn't always move forwards. And for all of human history, up to this point, if you wanted to cross the Rhine, you needed a boat. And if you wanted an army to cross the Rhine, you needed an army of boats. The only exception being if it's a very cold winter and the river freezes over and you can just walk right over, or if you're a good swimmer. But that doesn't really help an entire army cross because they're not all going to be good swimmers. And this is the way it had been for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, maybe, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. I've read that humans have occupied modern Germany since at least 600,000 years ago. That's roughly 598,000 years where, unless the river froze, you needed a boat to cross it or to be a great swimmer. Those were your options. So a person living along the Rhine on the Gallic or Germanic side could be excused for thinking it would remain this way for thousands of years into the future, that nothing would change. After all, almost nothing changed in these times, technologically speaking. Horse was the primary method of quick transportation. It had been for thousands and tens of thousands of years, and it would continue this way for centuries after this point. The same with weapons. Yes, there are changes in, in materials, but using a weapon to stab somebody... That's not going to change anytime soon and had been that way for you know, as, as long as humans can remember. And yes, I'm sure the Germans and the Gauls knew of and even built bridges themselves, but never had they built a bridge over a river as wide or as deep as the Rhine. So here Caesar and his legions come and they build a masterpiece of ancient military construction bridging the Rhine and connecting Gaul to Germania for the first time in recorded history, and they do it in only 10 days. This must have shook the very ground that the Germans walked on. I mean, we all have certain fundamental understandings of the way our world works, 
and the foundations which we build our thinking and conclusions on. And Caesar just shook the foundations of the Germanic mind with a magnitude 10 earthquake on the Richter scale. I mean, their minds must have been blown. The world is not as they thought it was. These Romans can build things they never imagined possible, and they can do it in 10 days. The effect this would have had on the Germans and the Gauls cannot be understated. Caesar has just taken their their laws of physics and turned them on their heads. And let's not forget the effect that this would have had on the people of Rome as well. No Roman army had ever crossed the Rhine. This is the frontier beyond the frontier. If Gaul is a deep, dark place full of aggressive barbarians, then the Germans are the barbarians on the frontier of the barbarians. Germania is the frontier of Gaul. And most Romans would likely know nothing about Germania. It was a distant, dangerous land that people didn't travel to. And here Caesar is, building a bridge across the Rhine and marching legion after Roman legion into Germania. It was the stuff of legend, and Caesar knew it. Let's focus on that for a moment. Caesar gives his justifications for the invasion, but he has other reasons he leaves out. He knows that an invasion of Germania will cause a sensation in Rome. It will be all people talk about, and his name will be on their lips. Because this is not a full-scale invasion, Rome does not plan to stay and occupy Germania. It's an invasion with very limited aims, and it's equally for propaganda purposes in Rome as it is to teach the Germanic tribes any real lesson. As always, Caesar is playing multiple games at once. And yes, he wants to subdue Gaul, but he also needs to keep playing politics in Rome. And the invasion of Germania helps him remain front and center in the political discussions in Rome. Now, in the commentaries, Caesar goes into what Adrian Goldsworthy describes as loving detail about this bridge of his. And I won't bore you with all the details. If you're an engineer or somebody who finds construction fascinating, maybe pick up the Gallic Wars and you might find it an interesting read. But I will give you a few details. The Romans used rafts on the river and cranes were used to lower piles, Caesar calls them piles, or you might think of them as large stakes, into the riverbed, and a ram was used to hammer them in at angles. Caesar says the bridge was constructed in such a way that the greater the press of water against the bridge, the more firmly the bridge's joints were held into position. And from what I could find, none of the primary sources give any measurements for the size of the bridge, but we do know that the Romans built strongly garrisoned forts to guard both ends of the bridge, one fort in Gaul, one fort in Germania to protect the bridge and protect Caesar's line of retreat and his line of supplies. The Romans even added piles or large stakes upstream to slow down any attempt by Germanic tribes to send logs or ships down the Rhine in an attempt to destroy the bridge. The idea being that these stakes would catch the objects and slow them down before they hit the bridge and therefore lessen the impact on the bridge. In the end, it wasn't even necessary. The Romans built and crossed the bridge so quickly the Germanic tribes barely had time to react. Caesar says that after all the materials for the bridge had been gathered, it took the Roman army only 10 days to build the first ever bridge over the Rhine and to cross it. They built it and crossed it in 10 days. And for my geography buffs out there, the exact location of the bridge is unknown, 
But Adrian Goldsworthy thinks it is likely somewhere between modern Koblenz and Adernach in modern Germany. Now, after crossing the Rhine, Caesar and his legions immediately begin marching towards the Sugambri. This is the tribe that had taken in the cavalry of the Eusipides and the Tenctari. And the Sugambri and the remnants of the Eusipides and the Tenctari had been preparing to flee the second that they saw the bridge being built. So the second they saw the Romans building a contraption across the Rhine that they had never seen before, they said, all right, it's time to get out of here. So the second they see the legions actually crossing the river, poof, they're gone. They're, they're leaving in a panic and they retreat deeper into hidden parts of the forest in Germania. Caesar keeps marching, though, and arrives in their territory and finds it empty. Of course, this is not going to stop Caesar from punishing them in some way, so he burns their villages, he chops down their crops, and then he and his army retreat to the land of the Ubii, the tribe that had actually invited him over the Rhine. So Caesar meets with the Ubii, and he promises to help them in dealing with the Suebi. The Ubii tell Caesar that the Suebi already know of his bridge through scouts they have in the area, and that the Suebi had held a council and had decided to actually fight Rome. They weren't going to run. The Suebi had sent messengers out in every direction telling their civilians to retreat into the deep forest of the Suebi territory, and that all those able to bear arms were to assemble in the middle of the Suebi territory. There, they would wait for Caesar and the Romans to give battle. Now, there are two different ways to view what happens next. One is the way Caesar depicts it. Caesar says that he had already accomplished all of his objectives. And those objectives were terrorizing the Germans, wreaking vengeance on the Sugambri, liberating the UBI from a blockade that apparently the Suebi had on their territory. And Caesar says that he had achieved enough in terms of honor and advantage to now return to Gaul. And this makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. But the second, more cynical way to look at what happens is that Caesar hears about a massive German army gathering deep in the forests of Germania and decides that he doesn't want that fight, and he runs back across the Rhine as quick as he can. Now, in Caesar's defense, I think it would be stupid for him to have tried to take on Germania and Gaul at the same time. Plus, he would have had to have marched deep into Germanic territory to even fight the Suebi army on ground of their choosing, which again is not a good thing to do when you're fighting. I think this is a case where it's better to pick and choose your battles, and it's another lesson about mission creep that happens so often in armies or, or any venture. It could be a company, a nonprofit. Mission creep is where you start out with one objective, have some success, and then your mission broadens and changes, and pretty soon you're fighting battles that you never intended to fight. Right? This is part of the reason why Napoleon ended up taking Moscow during the Napoleonic Wars, when he never had any intention of taking Moscow originally. Mission creep is when gradually your aims change, and Caesar, he may not be aware of the term mission creep, but he's aware that he has a clear objective in his mind's eye, that is to conquer and subdue Gaul, and fighting massive Germanic armies in the heart of Germania is not going to get him there. Caesar and the Romans stayed beyond the Rhine for a total of 18 days, and after crossing back into Gaul, they tore down their own bridge. This incredible feat of ancient engineering that, I mean, in total, they built the bridge and crossed it in 10 days, left it in place for 18 days, 
ravaged Germania, and then quickly dismantled the bridge like it was no big deal. They did not want to make it easier for the Germans to cross the Rhine in the future. In fact, their hope was that this invasion, this raid, would deter future Germanic invasions. That was one of the reasons for this whole expedition, to show the Germanic tribes that they aren't safe beyond the Rhine from the Romans and from Caesar, and that invasions don't just have to happen from Germania into Gaul. They can very much happen the other way around, and Rome could and would build a bridge and cross into the Rhine at any time they pleased. This was putting the Germanic tribes on notice that Rome could and would invade Germania if Germanic tribes continued to cause issues in Gaul. Now, only time will tell if this lesson has been absorbed by the various Germanic tribes, but this is the hope. Author Tom Holland says of this whole escapade, quote, Caesar had always had a penchant for spectacular acts of demolition. After all, only a decade previously, he had leveled his new villa and thereby made himself the talk of Rome. The iron-bodied general who always snatched his soldiers' rations in the saddle, who was capable of inspiring whole legions with his courage, who shared every rigor and hardship that he imposed on his men, sleeping on frozen ground wrapped only in his cloak, was still the flamboyant Caesar of old. The taste he had indulged in as a rake for excitement and grand gestures now infused his strategy as a proconsul of the Roman people. As ever, he looked to dazzle, to overall. The building and leveling of a bridge across the Rhine had served only to whet his appetite for even more spectacular exploits. End quote. And what spectacular exploit did Caesar have in mind next? Well, the invasion of Britain, of course. You see, breaking one mental and physical barrier to the Romans in 55 BCE wasn't enough for Caesar. He wanted to cross two of these monumental barriers in one year. And before we continue our story, let's take a moment to put this into context. In invading Germania, Caesar had brought a Roman army across the Rhine to a land it had never ventured to before. Invading Germania was kicking down the door into the land of the barbarians' barbarian. Remember, this idea that the Germanic peoples are like the barbarians to the Gauls who are the barbarians to the Romans. But Britain is seen as a different level of exotic to the Romans altogether. Some people in Rome even doubt that Britain exists at all. It truly is a legend. Plutarch says on this, quote, For he, meaning Caesar, was the first who brought a navy into the Western Ocean, or who sailed into the Atlantic with an army to make war, and by invading an island, the reported extent of which had made its existence a matter of controversy among historians, many of whom question whether it were not a mere name and fiction, not a real place, he might be said to have carried the Roman Empire beyond the limits of the known world. End quote. There really is no parallel to this today. I, I racked my brain trying to think of an equivalent parallel, and there's just nothing because the world's not quite so mysterious as it once was during Caesar's day. I mean, the best I could think of would be if Elon Musk took a armada of spaceships and an army of people and invaded some part of the universe that was so far away from us that scientists weren't even sure it had existed, and there were debates on whether it existed or not. I mean, that's the kind of mind-blowing thing this is. The Romans aren't even sure if Britain exists. There's debates about it. And next thing you know, Caesar's invading Britain and writing dispatches from the front lines of Britain 
back to home, right? That would be like Elon Musk going to some distant galaxy that we're not even sure exists, sending back videos of wild stuff that we can't even begin to imagine in an area that we thought didn't exist, or at least question the existence of. It's not a perfect analogy, but I'm just trying to give you an idea of the wonder and awe that's inspired in Rome. Even Roman traders didn't travel to Britain. It was a far-off land across the sea filled with spooky forests and barbaric peoples that, again, may or may not have even existed. So the idea that this legendary land of Britain not only exists, but that Caesar is going to sail there at the head of a Roman army and send back an eyewitness account is just mind-blowing to the Romans. I've heard Caesar's invasion of Britain described akin to the discovery of the New World by Europeans in the 1400s. It had that sort of sensational effect on Rome and the Roman people. Author Tom Holland says of this expedition, quote, So it was that no sooner had Caesar crossed his men back into Gaul than he was marching them northward toward the Channel Coast and the encircling ocean. Set within its icy waters waited the fabulous island of Britain. It was as drenched in mystery as in rain and fog. Back in Rome, people doubted whether it existed at all. Even traders and merchants, Caesar's usual sources of information could provide only the sketchiest of details. Their reluctance to travel widely through the island was hardly surprising. It was well known that barbarians became more savage the farther north one traveled, indulging in any number of unspeakable habits, such as cannibalism and even, repellently, the drinking of milk. To teach them to respect the name of the Republic would be an achievement of Homeric proportions. For Caesar, who never let anyone forget, he could trace his ancestry back to the time of the Trojan War, the temptation was irresistible. End quote. Of course, Caesar knew that he had his work cut out for him before any real invasion could begin. As we've made abundantly clear, very little is known about Britain, or as the Romans would call it, Britannia. But Caesar seems to have already been planning his voyage for at least a little while now, since he says in the commentaries that at some point he had summoned traders from every region of Gaul to pick their brains on Britannia. Unfortunately, none of them could tell him anything useful. Caesar says that they didn't know the size of the island, they didn't know the nature or numbers of the people living there, they didn't know the, their skill in warfare, they didn't know their customs, they didn't even know where a suitable harbor could be found. Essentially, they were useless. Now, Adrian Goldsworthy puts forward the idea, and I tend to agree with him, that it's quite possible that these traders were intentionally useless. Think about it. Traders who make a living trading with British tribes do not necessarily see a profit in Rome invading their trade partners and forcibly opening the area to Roman traders. I mean, that sounds like a nightmare to them, so it would be in their best interest to scratch their head and say, gee, Caesar, I really don't know anything about the British tribes. I don't know their numbers. I don't know their customs and warfare. I don't even know the harbors, even though I sail there on a regular basis. Now, in their defense, I've read that they would sail more to the western part of the island, and Caesar was looking to sail to the eastern part of the island, kind of the quickest way across the channel. So maybe if his questions were directed at the eastern part of the island, maybe they actually didn't know. But either way, they couldn't help Caesar much. And of course, just like the invasion of Germania, Caesar takes some time in the commentaries to justify his actions here with the invasion of Britannia. 
Caesar has said earlier in the commentaries that the Veneti, remember that was the naval faring Gallic tribe that Caesar had gone to war with and they had much better ships than him and the Romans had to have a naval battle with them. That was, I think, two episodes ago. Caesar says that the Veneti had received support from Britain when they were at war with Rome. And he also says that in almost every war Rome has waged under his command against the Gauls, the Gauls have received reinforcements from Britannia. Now, you may wonder why Caesar even bothers to give justifications for invading Germania and for invading Britannia. And the key thing is, well, I mean, there's two reasons. One is that Rome never wants to be seen as the aggressor without first showing that they've been aggrieved, much like modern nations. If we look at, I mean, what's the top invasion that comes top of mind right now would be the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Even Russia doesn't just say, hey, we're invading Ukraine because we want more territory. They take time to lay down all sorts of propaganda about how Ukraine is run by Nazis and is attacking ethnically Russian citizens within their territory and that the invasion by Russia of Ukraine is just to defend the Ukrainian people from an evil government. It's all nonsense, right? But even Russia takes the time to concoct some kind of propaganda story to justify their invasion. So much like modern nations, Rome was always the same way. As crazy as their logic may seem, they have to lay out a whole bunch of points as to why they are invading to make it known that they are not just invading just for territory or just because right of conquest or something like that. Of course, the second reason that Caesar personally needs to justify his actions is because he is the governor of three provinces. What business does he have sailing his his army, which belong in the provinces, to Britannia or marching them over the Rhine into Germania? I mean, really, he has no legal business doing this. But by writing these commentaries, he can get popular support on his side. And as long as he keeps winning, nobody's going to punish him for doing these things. And of course, while Caesar never mentions it himself, there were more base motivations for these invasions. There were rumors that Britain contained rich natural resources. This type of motivation is like the ancient version of invading the Middle East for oil, right? (laughs) If there's rich natural resources, the Roman government wants it. Caesar sees it. He can be the one that brings it. And if he's the one that gets these resources for Rome, of course, he's going to have sticky fingers in the pot of money, right? And he's going to collect a lot for himself. Now, one of our ancient sources, Suetonius, also claims that Caesar's love of pearls is one of the things that prompted his invasion of Britain. Apparently, the idea was that the British coasts were supposed to have particularly beautiful or large pearls, which is not true, (laughs) but at the time, they may have thought that in Rome, And Suetonius adds that Caesar would sometimes test these pearls in the palm of his hand to test their weight. And he just kind of gives us this image of a greedy Caesar just being obsessed with pearls, obsessed with weighing them out in his hand. He likes them so much. (laughs) It's a wonderful image. But how much of this from Suetonius should we believe? Did Caesar really launch an invasion of Britain while he's trying to subdue Gaul just because he heard they have nice pearls? I'd leave that up to you. I will say that Suetonius does love a good rumor, though, and he tends to be more negative on Caesar's character than other ancient sources. In my opinion, at least. And again, I'm not a professional historian or a historian at all. I'm, I'm an amateur fan of history. 
Back to the planning of the invasion of Britannia, though, Caesar does need to have some idea of what he's getting himself and his legions into. So he sends one of his officers, a man named Gaius Volusinus, ahead on a warship with a reconnaissance mission to patrol the British coast and to find good landing points and just to bring back additional information to Caesar about the British coast and about the land of Britannia in general. And while this reconnaissance mission is happening, Caesar marches at the head of his legions to the territory of the Marini. Now, just to jog your memory, because I know I'm throwing a lot of tribe names at you, the Marini, along with the Monopii, were the two tribes that Caesar was chasing into the forest at the beginning of our last episode. They retreated deep into the forest. Caesar started cutting down their trees before the rain hit, and then Caesar abandoned the operation. So the Marini never surrendered. And the Marini live around what is modern Pas-de-Calais in France. I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation, but I'll call it Calais from now on. But this is the closest part of continental Europe to the island of Britain. It kind of looks across the English Channel, sort of towards modern Dover. Now, upon arriving in this area, Caesar begins planning his invasion. Of course, invasion in, in air quotes, because... It's really, it's, it's not an invasion. It's what you might call a reconnaissance in force. The campaign season is drawing to a close, and Caesar does not intend to conquer the island. He wants to make a splash in Rome. He wants to explore this area. He wants to punish some British tribes. And he wants to make a name for himself as the first person to lead Roman soldiers over into Britannia. But he's not looking to subdue the island. So, in preparation, Caesar orders local ships to be gathered for the expedition, and I don't imagine that he was asking, right? <laughs> you imagine Roman soldiers showing up at a harbor, looking around and saying, yep, all these ships coming with us. I don't know that for a fact. Maybe they paid for them. You know, after all, Caesar doesn't want to piss off the locals too much, but I don't imagine it was a choice or there was too much haggling. He also orders for the fleet that had been recently used against the Veneti to gather in Calais, too. Now, as all this is happening, as the fleet is being gathered, word spreads via traders all the way to Britannia, and several British tribes actually send envoys to Caesar. These envoys arrive in Gaul and meet with Caesar, and they offer him hostages and promise to obey the rule of Rome. Now, Caesar hasn't set foot in Britain yet, and already people are surrendering. This is a sort of dream come true for Caesar. In the commentaries, Caesar says that he listened to these envoys, made generous pledges, and then reminded them to remain true to their, quote, avowed intentions. You already get the impression that Caesar is expecting his new allies to be fickle. This is the way the Romans always saw barbaric peoples, that they were quick to do this and then quick to do that, and did not have a kind of determined direction that they wanted to go. And so you couldn't always trust their words, because the second that it wasn't convenient, they would break their word. That is the Roman view of barbarian peoples. I'm sure the peoples of Gaul and Germania and Britannia had much different views on their people. Now, Caesar does send a Gallic man back with these envoys, a man named Comius. And Comius was made king of his tribe. His tribe was the Atrobates, and he was made king of them by Caesar after Caesar had defeated their tribe in battle. The reason Comius was sent was that he was supposed to have a lot of influence in Britain, and Caesar says that he, meaning Caesar, thought highly of Comius' courage and good sense. And Comius' mission is to approach British tribes once he's there and to alert them of Caesar's imminent arrival. 
and to urge them to, quote, choose loyalty to the Roman people. Kind of a funny message to send because how can you be loyal to a people that you've never met and probably have never heard of? Comius is also ordered to declare to the different tribes that Caesar is on his way. He is a sort of prophet sent ahead of the Messiah that is Caesar. Now, after five days of reconnaissance, Caesar's officer that he had sent on that warship, Gaius Philosenus, returns from his expedition to the British coast, and he tells Caesar that he never set foot on the island. He said that he did not dare due to the threat of barbarian attacks. And I have to imagine Caesar was not too impressed with this reconnaissance mission. I mean, the guy was sent to explore Britain, to report back to Caesar, and how much can he really know if he never even stepped foot on the island? But in Volcinus' defense, he did sail along the coastline and did his best to give Caesar a lay of the land. So it is something. It's more than Caesar knew before. Now, one other thing did happen while Caesar and his officers were preparing for this reconnaissance in force and gathering their fleet. A majority of the Marini people approach Caesar and want to make peace. Apparently, seeing Caesar's entire Roman army encamped on their doorstep made an impression on them. I'm not surprised by that. And according to Caesar, they made excuses for their past actions on the grounds that they were barbarians and not accustomed to the Roman ways. This is why they had made war on the Romans. Essentially, they're playing the dumb barbarian card where they say, Hey, Caesar, we're just a bunch of dumb barbarians. We just attacked you because uh, we don't know any better. We're sorry. <laughs> but now they pledge to carry out whatever Caesar orders. This is perfect timing for Caesar, since he doesn't want a hostile tribe at his back while he's in Britain, and if he can make peace easily now before he leaves, that's excellent. So he orders these people to bring him a large number of hostages, and they do. But of course, this is not all of the Marini. It is a large portion of their tribe that have surrendered, but there are still elements of the tribe that are holding out. And then, of course, there's the Monopii, the second tribe in the area that hasn't surrendered at all. Caesar's only planning on taking two legions to Britain with him, and the rest of the army he leaves with his legates in Gaul. And the mission of his legates with this army is to, one, guard the harbor where Caesar has to sail from and return to, and two, wage war on the Monopii and the elements of the Marini who have not yet surrendered. And three, finally, and this one's very important, to keep an eye on Gaul while Caesar is away. They have to make sure no rebellions happen. I always find it astounding that Caesar was even able to leave Gaul without the entire place erupting in revolts. To me, this just seems like a massive gamble for him to leave Gaul with two legions. I would have thought that the second word spreads in Gaul that Caesar is gone from Gaul, that he's over in the island of Britannia, and that he took two legions with him, that the Gauls would seize the opportunity to throw off these new Roman shackles placed on them and unite and fight the Romans. But they don't. And I don't know why exactly. The Gauls are not done. They're not finished. They still have a lot of fight left in them. But for whatever reason, they don't take advantage of Caesar's absence. And if I had a guess, I'd say that this is due to Caesar's clever politicking in Gaul. Caesar is regularly holding conferences in which all the Gallic tribes defeated by Rome are required to come. He is making connections with their leaders constantly and some of their leaders are even appointed by Caesar, like Comius, who is king of the Atrobates because Caesar appointed him. Caesar has been very clever in the way he politics in Gaul. In addition to these formal conferences, he is constantly networking 
in less formal ways. Our ancient source Suetonius says of this, quote, While stationed abroad, he, meaning Caesar, always had dinner served in two separate rooms, one for his officers and Greek friends, the other for Roman citizens and the more important provincials, end quote. Important provincials in the case of Gaul, of course, meant Gallic nobility, Gallic senators, Druids, kings, and other influential Gauls. And because of this sort of networking, Caesar has managed to avoid having all or most of Gaul unite against him. This is a case of Caesar using politics as a form of war. By keeping these Gallic tribes divided, he is better able to conquer them. But even Caesar isn't infallible, of course, and at times his political maneuvering will fail, and Gaul will rise up against him, but not this time in Britain. And that is where we will end our episode today. In our next episode, Caesar and his legions will set sail for the mythical island of Britannia in late August of 55 BCE, with fall, or should I say autumn, since we are heading to Britannia, approaching. That's it. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next time on The March of History. But don't go quite yet. As always, I have a review to read. This one comes from Acts 65 or Acts 65. You're only getting better every episode. And he continues, My knowledge is good on Rome history. You made it so much better. Thank you, Acts 65. <laughs> That's not your real name. But that is the screen name here. I appreciate it. And I will say, I found out that the only reviews that show up to me in the Apple Podcast Store that I can easily see are the ones from the U.S., so in filtering through a few different countries on Apple's uh, login for me, I was able to see some more reviews. So I will get to reading those as I find them. If you want to reach out to me on the Instagram or, or any other platform that we have social media on and let me know which country you reviewed from, I can find it quicker that way and just let me know and I'll give you a shout out. So I appreciate the review, Act 65, and we are working to improve the show with every episode. So I appreciate the recognition. Now, if you want to have your own review read out in the March of History, go ahead and leave a five-star review in the Apple Podcast Store or whatever platform you listen from and a little blurb about what you like. Your name does not show up to me unless you write something. So if you just leave a five-star review, it is appreciated, but I do not get your name and I have nothing to read for you. And finally, don't forget to follow our Instagram page that's at the March of History. I really go to great lengths to make this Instagram page entertaining for you guys. It, I have videos of me talking about history in the Roman Forum, on the Appian Way, in the island of Capri where the Emperor Tiberius retreated to, the Colosseum, the castle of Saguntum where Hannibal and you know invaded and started the Second Punic War, and, and much, much more like Pompeii and Herculaneum. So there's tons of information on Roman history on this Instagram channel. It is a visual complement to the audio format that is this podcast. And if you check it out, and if you like the podcast, I'm certain you will also like the Instagram channel. Our Twitter, which I still haven't done that much with, but you can keep up with episode releases by following us on Twitter, is at March underscore history. Our Facebook page is The March of History. Don't forget to leave us a review on the podcast store. That is it. It's time for me to get packing. All of this talk of Caesar crossing the Rhine into Germania has made me want to visit Germany myself. So I will be headed to Munich and to Nuremberg soon. So I have to begin packing for that. But that is it. I will talk to you in next episode of The March of History.